in the series of Mark, and we're continuing um, in Mark chapter 9. We're looking at verses uh, 38 through 41 this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. Let me go ahead and read God's word for us. John said to him, that is Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word for us this morning. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would make our hearts soft, that you would give us a heart of flesh that would come alive, that would be convicted, that would beat uh, when, when it hears your word, the words of eternal life, and let it change us, let it move us into action so that we would not simply be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today opens up, um, interestingly, with a report about an unnamed, unknown disciple. Uh, and it's a disciple of Jesus casting out demons in Jesus' name. And that's a phrase that Jesus uses here to validate this person. Uh, as his true follower and true disciple. He's doing this in my name. It doesn't mean he's an apostle of equal authority. It doesn't mean he gets to write a book in the Bible. What it means is he's a true disciple. But what you see here is the disciples really struggling to welcome this man into the fellowship of the disciples, uh, into what we call the communion of the saints. Uh, there's a saying often attributed to St. Augustine that goes, like this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I think one way to describe what the disciples were struggling to grasp uh, is this. They were struggling to understand all three of these. Christian unity, Christian liberty, and Christian charity. And in this, in this short little encounter, in these four verses... Um, Jesus corrects them, teaches them all three. Um, brings them to a true understanding of all three. And, and, and we'll look at it in this, in this order. Christian liberty first, and then Christian unity, and lastly, Christian charity. That will be our outline for, for today. So, let's get right into it. First, let's think about Christian liberty. Uh, if you take a look at the end of verse 38... John, the disciple, speaking on behalf of all the disciples, filed this complaint against him. He says, because he was not following us. Because he was not following us. Now, this could mean several things, and, and different commentators say, say different things about this. Maybe this man was a Gentile. Um, maybe that's what bothered the disciples about him. That his customs and his traditions are different from the twelve. And so he's, quote-unquote, not following us. Or maybe his theology wasn't as complete 
at this point. Uh, maybe they heard him say certain things that don't completely align with what they've been hearing from Jesus. Maybe that's what they have issue with. Maybe it's plain old jealousy kicking in. Um, that he is able to successfully do what they have been failing to do. Uh, I'm personally leaning towards that last interpretation, uh, that they're acting out of jealous emotions. But the more important point here, um, given the context of this chapter and previous chapters, is that the disciples thought very highly of their own position, status, and opinions. Um, they thought themselves authoritative enough to be going around authorizing people to do things and forbidding people to do things. Okay. Because here they're saying, hey, stop it. Stop what you're doing. We didn't give you authority to do this. You're not a follower of us. Right? And that, again, is kind of ironic because remember what the disciples had just trouble doing early in the chapter? They had trouble exercising a demon from this little boy. And it took a desperate father's prayer, help my unbelief, uh, to bring that child to healing. And their primary concern was, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it, right? And then, right after that, they have the audacity to start having an argument about who is the greatest among us, right? It's not who is the weakest among us, who's the greatest among us. And now they encounter someone who is completely unknown, not a part of the 12, who's casting out demons successfully. Imagine what's that, what that's doing to their emotions. They're probably outraged, they're annoyed, they're feeling hurt, feeling angry. And out of that hurt, they, they fail to rejoice. Rejoice with this unnamed disciple successfully casting out evil spirits from people. Instead, they rebuke him. Right? They try to stop him, try to shut him down. They leave him with no liberties as a disciple of Christ. Because they're not, they're not seeing him as a part of their fellowship. They're excluding him. This is akin to what is called, um, you may have heard of the term tribalism. It's actually a, a term that's used in social psychology. And uh, it's a modern day equivalent, I would say. Modern day equivalent of the disciples, sort of this exclusivist practice. Uh, tribalism is usually defined as a group affinity that is adamantly loyal to your own tribe or social group while being adamantly hostile towards other groups with differing viewpoints or places of origin. And this can apply to cultural groups, racial groups, political groups, and religious groups as well. Uh, there's a NYU social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt who's an atheist uh, he makes the observation that modern-day tribalism is seen both among conservatives and liberals, among religious and the irreligious alike. It's a human trend, in other words. Uh, this intuition for, for this us-against-them mentality and willful blindness to one's own biases, being confined to what he calls groupish righteousness, these are universally human tendencies, he says. And I think what the disciples are displaying here is just a spiritual form of that. It's a spiritual form of tribalism. Us against them. Groupish righteousness. And Jesus has a problem with that and he corrects them. Now, before we go to that, here's a very reasonable question that some people might ask. Um, 
some people could rightly ask, isn't Christianity inherently tribalistic and, and exclusivist? You know, how is Jesus correcting the disciples uh, when he is also teaching things like, I'm the only way, I'm the only truth, no one comes to the Father except through me. Isn't he doing the same thing? It's not at all the same thing. Uh, because of two very important key distinctions. One, the basic idea behind tribalism is my tribe is sinless. The other tribe is sinful. That is not Jesus' position. His whole premise, right, his whole message is I'm here to call sinners to be a part of my tribe. Right? Meaning, he's here to build a tribe made exclusively of sinful people. That's his premise. All fall sh falling short of the glory of God and therefore all in need of the salvation offered by God. So in order to be Christian, you have to own up to your own sins and the sins of your own tribe long before you point fingers at anyone else. Right? That will be, if you could call that Christian tribalism, I'd be okay with that. But tribalism is, is, is inherently indignant towards others, whereas Christianity is repentant for oneself. Here's a second difference. Tribalism is a system that antagonizes people. Not people's beliefs, false beliefs, but people themselves. It makes you intolerant not only of beliefs that you identify as false, but the people who hold those false beliefs. That's tribalism. But Christianity, you see, is, is all about loving your enemies. Being merciful to those who doubt. Being ready to give an answer for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. That's Christian response to people who disagree with us. And this is not by giving up our Christian beliefs, but by treating the people who disagree with our beliefs with respect, with humility, and with love. Bottom line is, there's no room for tribalism in Christianity. No room whatsoever. That's the first point of correction for the disciples. See, the, the disciples' complaint wasn't, you're not following Jesus. Their complaint was, you're not following us. Meaning, he's not conforming to our culture, our traditions, our methods, or our philosophy of ministry. And they're making this, therefore, all about themselves. You want to be a part of the church? Be about us. Conform to us. When it should be about following Jesus, going on his mission, glorifying him. So what does Jesus do to correct this? He says this in verse 39. Take a look at verse 39. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Okay, so here's what he does first. He validates, again, the unnamed disciple. He's doing mighty works in my name, meaning he's on my side. He understands what I'm here for. I'm here to win in this cosmic battle between God and Satan, sin, and death. And he's on our side fighting against all those things in my name and he's defeating them and he's not going to suddenly turn around and curse me or say something evil about me when he's doing these things in my name don't stop him let him be let him do his thing right? in other words have some liberty in the matter regardless of what your non-essential disagreements are 
have some liberty in this matter, see him as a brother. See him as a co-laborer in the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus brings the disciples back into focus. It's not about you guys. The kingdom of God is not about you. It's not about conforming to you. It's about Christ. It's about the name of Christ. And if this man is agreed with you regarding this name, don't stop him. In other words, if you can unite around the name of Christ, this essential thing, you can have liberty in other things. And I appreciate that Mark intentionally leaves out, in a way, leaves out just what exactly was that drove the disciples to disagree with this person. Was it something cultural, racial, political, theological? We don't know. What we do know is where they agreed, in the name of Christ. And for that, that's enough for Jesus to say, unite around this name. See him as a brother in Christ. When I think about Christian liberty, my mind immediately goes to this one story. It's, it's a story about the late R.C. Sproul. Uh, he was one of the most influential Reformed Presbyterian ministers um, in the past couple of decades, and, and certainly someone very well respected in our, dare I say, tribe, PCA, in our denomination. Um, there's a very well-known, pretty well-known story about him about him being asked a question that has to do with another very influential Christian minister, the late Billy Graham. And, and the question to, to R.C. Sproul was, do you think you'll see Billy Graham in heaven? Do you think you'll see Billy Graham in heaven? And, and the questioner asked this because he was probably aware that Billy Graham and R.C. Sproul have very stark, um, a wide range of theological differences. Um, Sproul was a Presbyterian Graham was a Southern Baptist Sproul was a Calvinist Graham was an Arminian uh, Sproul believed in predestination Graham did not um, Sproul was reformed Graham was not, so on and so forth the, the list goes on and Sproul, R.C. Sproul if he's known for anything it's for teaching with deep unwavering, uncompromising conviction, all the doctrines within Reformed theology. That's what he's known for. He's sold out for Reformed theology. So how do you think he answered the question about Billy Graham? Here's what he said in reply. He said this, No, I don't believe I will see Billy Graham in heaven. Billy Graham will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away from the throne of God that I will be lucky even to get a glimpse of him. That's what he said. You see, this kind of respect and humility is what Christian liberty allows us to have. It's the liberty to say, hey, we may not be identical in all of these theological matters that are non-essential, but I respect you. I'm thankful for your ministry. I'm thankful for all that you're doing for the kingdom of God, brother. And please keep me in your prayers. Uh, let's work together where we can, support each other where we can, and encourage one another whenever we can. And when Jesus says in verse 40, 
For the one who is not against us is for us. He is challenging the disciples' tribalism further, implying that the word us turns out to be a lot broader, a lot wider than the disciples had previously thought. That there are others belonging to the fellowship, to the communion of the saints that they didn't know about. It's kind of like in 1 Corinthians 15. If you look, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, there's an interesting verse there where Paul says, after Jesus resurrected, he appeared to more than 500 brothers. 500 disciples. Who are these 500 disciples? Where are they coming from? And we don't know, but I would guess that this unnamed, unnamed man in Mark chapter 9 would be one of them. There are many others who, are, who can be included in the fellowship and communion of the church that we do not know about. God is bigger than us. God is bigger than the Reformed tradition. God is bigger than the PCA. God is bigger than the United States. In fact, God is bigger than our point in history. He is bigger than all of us. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, this is by no means endorsing some kind of like, like soft universalism. Okay, there, there could be non, not entirely non-Christians who do not believe in Christ who end up in heaven. It's not an endorsement of that, and it's not a way of saying it's okay to be lax. It's okay to be indifferent or or careless with our theology. That's not what this is about. The point here is actually quite the opposite. Okay. It's only when we are sure of our most essential doctrines, that is when we can have liberty in the non-essentials. If you're unclear about what is essential to your theology, you will have no liberty in the non-essentials because you don't know what the non-essentials are because you're unclear about what the essentials are. See, it's if you focus in on, hone in on what, what is the core of what I believe? What are the things I should not compromise? What are the essentials of my faith? That is when you begin to be able to have freedom, liberty in the non-essentials. So see, in order to exercise liberty, we actually need to pursue doctrine more, not less. We need more doctrinal unity, doctrinal clarity, not less. And this takes us to the second point, and that is concerning Christian unity. Uh, you see, there's a balance we have to strike here between unity and liberty, right? Because on the one hand, we have to hold on to the essential truths about Jesus and the gospel, and, and on the other hand, we have to know what we can be liberal about, free about, in the non-essentials. Uh, Jesus said, he's casting out demons in my name. He understands who I am. He understands what I'm here to do, where I'm coming from, what I will promise to do in the future. That is very central to our identity. Right? That unites us. And therefore, when we're united around that, we can be tolerant and free towards those people who hold non-essential disagreements. That's the balance. Okay? Now, what makes this balancing act very difficult for us, especially today, I think is this. It's the evolving definition of tolerance. What tolerance really means. Christian liberty doesn't, shouldn't lead us to say, you can hold whatever doctrine you want, I'll consider it equally as valid as mine. That's not Christian liberty. Um, 
in a sense, Christian liberty is not so much a doctrinal tolerance. Uh, it's, for lack of a better word, a social tolerance. Not a doctrinal tolerance, but a social tolerance. Let me explain the difference between doctrinal tolerance, social tolerance, a little bit further. Um, I think it, it's, it's reasonable, it's, it's fair enough to say in recent years, the definition of tolerance has changed from respecting people you disagree with to not disagreeing with other people's beliefs, not refuting other people's beliefs. And what are, whatever other people believe, you have to affirm. That's tolerance. And so that means what? Any kind of exclusive truth claim is viewed as intolerant. See, that's a shift from social tolerance, respecting people with this, uh, different beliefs, to doctrinal tolerance. All beliefs are equal, equally valid. So, so we don't hear so much, I respect you, but I disagree with your beliefs. It's more like all beliefs are equally respectable, so I can, whatever floats your boat, you know, live your truth, I'll live mine. That's the norm. That's becoming the norm. And, and my point here is this. Social tolerance, I disagree with you, but I respect you. That's very Christian. Doctrinal, doctrinal tolerance, whatever you believe, man, it's equally valid as mine. That's not Christian tolerance. It is not Christian practice to say all beliefs are equally respectable, equally valid, and agreeable. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. He said quite the opposite. So if we're following in his footsteps, we have to strike the balance he's striking here, standing firm in the essentials, being unwavering in the essentials, disagreeing with and refuting the things that contradict our essentials, while being respectful towards those who disagree. That would be Christian tolerance. Not only is it Christ-like, it's actually not even logical, uh, this whole doctrinal tolerance movement. Um, and you know why, you've heard this before, because even the view, even the view that we should be inclusive of all views is itself exclusive of exclusive views. <laughs> it's not entirely as inclusive as, as it wants to be. The view that says it's wrong to make absolutely exclusive truth claims is itself making an absolute truth claim. That it's wrong, absolutely wrong to make exclusive truth claims. In other words, the claim that all beliefs are equal is actually claiming that those who disagree with my views are wrong and therefore not equal. Right? Doctrinal tolerance is not only unbiblical, not Christ-like, it's not even logically defensible. It's self-defeating. It's it's just as divisive, just as exclusive as any other doctrine. Everybody has a doctrine. Everybody is exclusive. And the only question is, how do you treat those who hold different doctrines? Do you have something built into your doctrine that enables you to respect and be civil towards those who hold different views? And that's what I mean by social tolerance, not doctrinal social tolerance. And the theologian D.A. Carson, he, 
he put he describes social tolerance this way. He and and his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, is actually worth a, a read if you if you want a summer reading book recommendation before your semester starts or something like that. Uh, that's a that's a good book to read. Quote. In a multicultural society, people of different religions should mix together without slight and condescension, for all people have been made in the image of God, and all will give an account to him on the last day. Of all people, Christians ought to know that they are not one whit socially superior to others. They talk about a great Savior, but they are not to think of themselves as a great people. So... Social tolerance should be encouraged. We talk about a great savior. We do not think of ourselves as a great people. Right? This is the basis, I think, of Christian social tolerance. It makes us doctrinally rock solid, unwavering, uncompromising, and united at the same time. It keeps us humble, respectful, and within a certain boundary, even free and liberal with those who hold different non-essential views. Okay, you see how this works? When you put your focus on doctrine, on sound theology, it enables you to be free with others. Because you're secure. You're secure in your essential beliefs. Then you're free to run, you're free to play within those boundaries. Free to explore, free to ask questions, free to engage with people who doubt. But we have to be firm on the essentials first. Now, uh, what is the essential doctrine? Just real quick. I, I mentioned that it's the name of Christ. It's who he is, what, what he's come to do, why humanity needs him. I think here's a great quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great reform Presbyterian minister I respect. He, he was a, the minister at Westminster Chapel in London during the mid-1900s, for over 30 years. Um, again, someone who's rock solid in his theology, unwavering in his commitment to reform theology. Here's what he says about essentials. Quote, I am a Calvinist. I believe in election and predestination, but I would not dream of putting it under the heading of essential. You are not saved by your precise understanding of how this great salvation comes to you. What you must be clear about is that you are lost and damned, hopeless and helpless, and that nothing can save you but the grace of God in Jesus Christ and only Him crucified, bearing the punishment of your sins, dying, rising again, ascending, sending the Spirit, regeneration. Those are the essentials. And as long as we are prepared to agree about these things, I say we must not break fellowship. And for those of you who are currently going through membership, we're, we're going to do our, our part two this, this afternoon. Um, I hope you'll keep this in mind. Uh, because what you get from our membership course is why we hold to Reformed theology and what are the distinctives of our denomination. Why we believe in predestination and infant baptism. Why we're Calvinistic in our theology. But please know this too, right? Uh, even if you don't agree with all of these, even if you can affirm only the essentials, you can still be a member of our church. We, we ask that you submit to the teaching of the church, submit to the elders of the church, and you don't protest. Right? That would just be counterproductive. 
But if you're willing to continue this journey of learning about what it is that we teach, and you're not quite there yet, you're not in a 100% sort of understanding or agreement, that's okay. But we ask in the five questions, in the five membership vows, that you affirm these very essentials that Martin Lloyd-Jones just described. That you find, you consider yourself to be helpless and hopeless, and without, without salvation apart from the sovereign mercy of God. That, that's what it's really all about. The Church of Christ doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to the PCA. It doesn't belong to Reformed theologians. The Church of Christ belongs to Christ. He's the head and the king of the church, and we must unite around him first and foremost. At the same time, you know, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his, in his opening in, the, in his book, Mere Christianity, where he really essentially addresses Christian essentials, he talks about mere Christianity being like being in a hallway, being in a hallway with many doors to many rooms. And being in the hallway means what? You're in. You're in. You're in the house. You're in the building. But it's not until you walk in through the doors, you're able to sit down and eat with people and really enjoy um, the community, the fellowship of that, of that place. And that's, where, that's, where we, that's what we offer. That's why we offer membership, so you know what it's like to walk through the door here and become a member here. So you can have fellowship with us and communion with us. So we don't encourage lingering in the hallway. Uh, lingering there without a, a clear understanding of what is, my, what is my view on these issues, these deeper biblical issues, these theological matters? We encourage you to explore, we encourage you to study, so you can walk through those doors, taste them, see them, uh, and, and deepen your, not only your knowledge, but your understanding and your love for God. And I think this kind of ties in with the last point as well, and that is concerning Christian charity. And Jesus says this in verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So to the disciples who are very hung up on you know, not being able to do great, mighty things for Christ, Jesus has this to say to them. Offer somebody a cup of water. <laughs> Start with something small. Why? What? What is Jesus saying to them? Be faithful in the little things. Don't try to go big. Prove yourself to others. Prove yourself to be better than others. Don't make this about you, you and yourself. This is about the Christ. This is about His salvation for His people, for His glory. And how do you turn away from your self-centeredness, performance-driven kind of life to being Christ-focused, Christ-centered, living a gospel-driven life? by being faithful in the little things, serving in little ways. Because these little acts will remind you of one very important thing, and that is God has done the greatest and, and, the, and the biggest thing that needs to be done. He finished it. He doesn't need our service. He's so much more powerful than that. He's sovereign over all of that. And the more you realize that, you begin to see more and more the value of doing every little thing for him. Because it's about the heart. The heart that wants to honor him. Wants to serve our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, giving a cup of water. 
to those who belong to Christ. You know what John says later in his epistles? He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What he doesn't say is, you know, if you kind of graduate from folding chairs, giving people water, serving meals, to exercising demons, that's when you know you made it. That's when you know you, you hit varsity level with Christianity. He doesn't say that. If we love one another, in small ways, great ways, if we love one another, God's love will be perfected in us. And I think that means John's learned his lesson here. He's learned the importance of loving not in word or talk or even in doctrine, but in deed, with your hands and feet. That's what perfects us. Perfects the things we hear, perfects the things that we've been taught when we put it into practice. As C.S. Lewis said, Christian charity must be real and costly love. Real and costly love. Of course, we want to be intellectually airtight. But what, what is your belief costing you time-wise, energy-wise, emotional energy-wise? How, how are you being expended in a costly way, costly manner for your brothers and sisters? So, encouragement to us and to you is to start small. Be faithful in the little Come to worship every Sunday. Be ready for the call to worship. Come to community group once a month. Come out to Friday large group once a month. Serve in one ministry role. Offer someone a prayer one week. Babysit one child. Empty one trash bin. Invite one friend, strike up one conversation, pledge to support one missionary. These are the little cups of waters. These are the little things that we can begin to be faithful in because God sees them and he'll reward you. He sees them and he will reward you. These are all the ways that you can make your Christian charity real and costly. And I'm sure little by little you will go from this idea of, oh, I, must, I must prove myself to be a Christian. I must prove myself to be worthy of being here. I must prove myself to be of a certain maturity to simply loving the church, loving the people who are sitting to your left and right. It's about loving the church. It's not about proving yourself. It's about loving the church. Let's love and welcome one another this way, the way Jesus loved and welcomed us, and let's strive for this unity when we can, liberty, and above all things, charity. Let's pray. God, we pray uh, you would give us the, uh, the endurance and the encouragement we need uh, to live in harmony with one another, especially with our brothers and sisters here. May we be open to serving them um, when it's costly to us, uh, serving them in the little ways because you see it all, Lord. And we want to please you. And if we have been unnecessarily divisive, um, 
argumentative with those who disagree with us, with our non-essentials, Lord, have mercy on us. If we try to stop them, have mercy on us. Encourage us to encourage them, to pray for them, to see them as our brothers and sisters, to speak not ill of them, and when possible, partner with them even in ministry. Give us your vision for your kingdom. Help us to see you're so much bigger than our best efforts. Free us to the little things. Free us to the mundane and the ordinary things you call us to do. You're sovereign, Lord. You're in control. Help us to trust you. Receiving from your daily bread and, and the, the bread that we're about to receive at your table and find all that we need there. Not having to prove ourselves because you have proven yourself to us. May we rest in your amazing sovereign salvation. We pray in Jesus' name.